0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defence Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording May 6th, 2021, we're talking about sexual misconduct in the Canadian military and culture chain with Bibi Imran Millet and our fellow Charlotte duval lantois who are the authors of a recent paper on this subject with us. This podcast is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding a strategic partner of the federal government's national shipbuilding strategy, providing skilled, well-paying jobs that support Canada's economic recovery. Focused on diversity and inclusion in employment and supply chain, Ships for Canada is growing opportunities for Indigenous people, women, African Canadians and veterans. Because when we build in Canada, we invest in Canadians. Charlotte, Beebe, welcome to Defence Deconstructed.
1: Thanks for having
2: us. Thank you so much.
0: The two of you just published a paper uh, with uh, us um, Called Comprehensive Culture Change in the CAF from Buzzword to Actionable Items. Uh, and the paper's focused on the way that, uh, uh, from my read, the way that organizational culture and changing organizational culture is going to be an imperative for the Canadian military uh, addressing uh, effectively what it's trying to do in terms of changing behavior around sexual misconduct um, in our armed forces. So, I guess start off uh, by talking a little bit, as you lay out in the paper, aside from the, the criminal act and the harm to the individuals that are affected by it, um, talk about some of the other reasons why you think um, fixing this issue, which you addressed in the paper, is actually important for the functioning of our military in Canada.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we addressed in the paper is how diversity and, and sexual misconduct is a barrier to that is how diversity uh, enhances operational effectiveness. And it's essentially because it allows for multiple outlooks on specific issues. If we have a more collaborative uh, workplace, if we have more a bigger diversity, of perspective, different perspectives, different outlooks on, on certain issues, we find that the way that we solve problems is more inclusive and more holistic. And this is a problem in the military. We often find, because it is a closed organization, we often find that there is a homogeneity in the way that we think about problems. And so enhancing diversity can be a solution to that and in the end, enhance operational effectiveness.
2: Yeah. So, and I think the other piece of this is that like, yes, um, diversity helps operational effectiveness. Okay. We know this. And there is actually a really strong literature on this um, from different organizations and from the management sector in particular, but the the issues with continually making this argument, which we've seen a lot of people make and which we throw in as well, because it has to continue to be made, is that it kind of often essentializes women as kind of the solution to a problem when we make this argument and it kind of makes it seem like just the mere presence of women is enough when we know that it's not. Um, And also that women shouldn't need to prove themselves in this way. Um, They're 50% of the population, they have rights and therefore, it should be included. And further, we've seen that operational effectiveness arguments haven't worked for the last 20 years. People have been telling the military for over 20 years that diversity helps operational effectiveness. Like it's it's this argument that's been made over and over again and people aren't listening or they say they're listening when when they're really just going, okay, whatever, that's fine. Um, and it's not gonna be enough to, to break down those systemic barriers and treat people fairly. So what we were trying to kind of come across in the article is that like yes diversity enhances operational effectiveness but we need to move beyond that argument and start recognizing that people shouldn't need to prove themselves at this point it's it's a foregone conclusion
0: you also uh point out that misconduct is actually a security risk so expand on that a little bit how how is misconduct a security risk in the wider sense rather than just to the security of a person
2: yeah, so I mean, as we said in the article, leaders who engage in sexual misconduct are not good leaders. They like it's harsh, and I'm sorry to say this, and I know people will have a problem with that, but it's just true. Sexual misconduct breaks down trust um, and it displays a pattern of dehumanization and abuse of power that we don't want to see from our leaders in any institution. And leaders who dehumanize those who, that they, who, li- who they lead and abuse the power. They're not good leaders. They they don't work well, and we should be able to recognize that. Trust and morale and cohesion is ruined in the cases of sexual misconduct, which creates a security risk in and of itself It poisons the culture, not just at the individual level between the people involved in the sexual misconduct, but whole units. News gets around, jokes are made, reputations are changed, often with the survivor being degraded, which signals to others that survivors should be blamed and should... be degraded and creates this toxic culture that could actually create an information risk if people who are constantly victimized start feeling resentment towards their institutions. So as many have argued complete trust and leadership is also needed especially for operations and how can the trust be built back at this point when the top leaders are either perpetuators or complicit in the perpetuation. And then the other factor is kind of the turnover and the power vacuums on the other side. So briefings get rushed, priorities get scrambled, not just at the leadership level, but lower down too, if there are lower down leaders who are also engaging in sexual misconduct, which we know that there are. And people don't want people to be removed. So the fact that there could be a power vacuum actually might increase this toxic culture of not pointing out when harassment happens and it feeds back into the cycle. So it's just this whole cycle that kind of perpetuates these security risks over and over again. And it's really difficult to break out of that cycle for a number of reasons.
1: Yeah, and I would like onto that is, is kind of become a phrase that I've been repeating over time is that sexual misconduct is just a gender tip of the iceberg. Um, Sexual misconduct is a symptom of uh, an organization that has a hard time taking care of its personnel, that really has a hard time to really pay attention to fundamental personnel and well-being issues. And so what happens is that we talk talk about this in terms of larger security and even impacts the defense of Canada in the long run, but we also need to take into account that the health and security of the person also plays into that and also plays in operational effectiveness. And so if we have a hard time dealing with sexual misconduct, imagine all of the more pernicious and less visible personnel issues or health issues or other types of interpersonal issues that, that the military has to deal with they're not able to deal with that either. And it is a pattern, as Bibi said, that, that crumbles and poisons the in- institution, not only in the short term and in deployment, but also over the long term. And it is, it is a sign of an organization that has a hard time to, to adapt to new dynamics.
0: The final uh, sort of area that you you lay out uh, about why addressing this is is important uh, relates to the the human rights implications of this. Um, So, Bibi, talk a little bit about uh, what you were talking about there.
2: Yeah, so I want to start off with this really excellent quote from Leah West, who's a former armed officer, a survivor of military sexual assault, a lawyer, and an academic. And she wrote a Globe and Mail article recently. And she says my story is not unique for decades women who are prepared to sacrifice everything to defend this country their lives their rights their freedoms not to mention time with children and loved ones have effectively been told that they aren't worthy of the same respect as their male counterparts put simply the canadian armed forces leadership does not value women or their contribution to the mission enough to make the military a safer and fairer place for them so this is this is the crux of the issue that Leo west gets at here so and it's clear from the fact that the report of the Royal Commission on the Status of Women in 1970 and Section 15 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms were the two documents that mo- motivated the push for more inclusion into the military, not the fact that the military wanted to have women in there. So it's a human rights issue when people cannot serve safely, as Leo West points out, it's a human rights issue when this issue disproportionately impacts marginalized groups in the military, such as women, queer people, people of color, the human rights issue when women are only allowed in due to a human rights investigation, and then they cannot serve in a safe way. So I think, yeah, with all of that, it's, it creates a pretty clear human rights issue.
1: Yeah, and I will get, you know, on the nerdy history side of it, but the way that Canada started conceptualizing its military is by the idea of the soldier citizen. And the fact that women have had so many, and, and other diverse people, because this issue doesn't concern only women, the the barriers to serve, not only uh, legal barriers that that we've seen being blown up in the past 30 years, but also the informal barriers uh, to the basic safety is the idea that women are not citizen enough, diverse people are not citizen enough, are not included enough in society to be valuable members of the military. There is also another issue is that if service members treat their women comrades that way, how do they treat women that they are supposed to protect overseas? Uh, We've seen issues of uh, peacemakers and peace builders abusing their powers and engaging in different forms of uh, sexual misconduct there as well and so if we cannot treat the women in which they are supposed to establish a strong relationship of trust how can we trust the organization to actually protect the women that they're being sent abroad to to protect and serve
0: okay so that's the problem set i think that you can kind of very well articulate that um what the issues are why they're important why they matter uh so talk a bit about so why culture change is fundamental to addressing it. So why can't you just change the structure, change the rules, change the punishment incentive structure? Uh, why is the culture piece to this so important?
1: So actually your your question kind of lays out how we tend to misunderstand what organizational culture is. We see culture as that big, large blob that we cannot see and that we cannot really understand. Culture, especially in an organization, is how the structure influences behaviors, attitudes, and values, and how those values, behaviors, and attitudes shape the structure. So in order to change the culture, you will have to change those structures. You need to finally put in place punishments for people uh, that engage in sexual misconduct instead of saying, hey, that person performs really well. Why should we um, destroy their career just for that? little incident you know and there's stuff like that um really looking at the different ways that um and barriers for women's service um in terms of equipment in terms of physical standards there are ways in which a structure also shows that that also show that women are not as valuable a member of the military than men are. And this is what we need to address first. It is that structure piece that we need to address first to change behavior in the long-term. And that's what culture change means essentially.
0: Okay, so if that's, the, that's the salience of culture. That's the, the way that it, it, it would undergird the potential change, uh, lead to a better situation for uh, other people serving in the armed forces rather than the, the traditional ones. So how do we actually go about uh, making this happen? Right? What do you actually need to do to affect culture change?
1: So as we said in the paper, uh, and it sounds simple enough, but culture change is not easy. We, we need a plan, we need a vision, we need measures, and we need a timeline. Those are the, the criteria to really uh, make that change possible. Uh, the military doesn't seem to be able to come about that uh, despite being an organization that works on plans and operational, even Operation Honor uh, did not put those in place because at the basis of those criteria, we need to have strong and persistent buy-in at the top and strong messaging that gets buy-in down the, the chain of command. And, and those are some of the difficulties. It's not just saying, hey, you need to stop touching women and you'll be fine. It doesn't change the culture. It doesn't change anything. So you need to establish this plan, put in place the structural change that I mentioned earlier, and all of that starts with buy-in and continues with monitoring and with a system of accountability that rewards when proper changes are made or that punishes when uh, things are not being implemented fast enough or are being ignored, like the recommendations that uh, have been made in the past 30 years.
2: Yeah, and as, as we say in the article, so Charlotte there kind of like really went over like the bigger model, but I just want to highlight like a couple of things that, you know, could start happening right now. So like, as we said in the article, we really like the model of, you know, listening to survivors' stories and then including that with expert testimony and putting that in like a little package together. We think that that's a good model. Um, we need to find better ways for survivors and experts to tell their stories together, to collaborate, and in a way that also facilitates the healing of survivors and doesn't just facilitate like re-traumatizing and just you know telling your stories again in front of these these um, tribunals where you think that nothing will happen out of it like there needs to be a way that survivors get something out of this too um the CAF should work to establish links with with women's and sexual misconduct organizations in civil society in Canada we have a great architecture in Canada we actually have a lot of organizations that work on preventing sexual assault and sexual violence in Canadian society more generally. And I encourage women's organizations who think they're capable of helping to reach out to the CAF. I really think those partnerships are needed and vice versa, the CAF should be reaching out to them. There are formal and informal networks of military survivors such as Dawn's Awareness Network and it's Just 700 and others that should not be pushed aside, that should be engaged with directly. And honestly, they've been telling their stories for a long time and they need people to take them seriously. And, you know, the kind of final thing I would say on this that we said in the article too, is that if it's procedure and doctrine that are preventing change, then procedure and doctrine need to be changed. It's not, it's not an excuse. You you can't keep going on like this where it's like, well, that's just not how we do things. That's not within the procedure. Like that's wrong. Like we've done it this way for like, however many years, like that's clearly the problem. The problem is, how it's been done, so it needs to be changed.
1: If I can add to that, again, uh, one piece that Bibi really touch on is if doctrine and procedure prevents that. And actually, what we find is that there is a discrepancy between the doctrine and military values and how they practice it. And I think that this is where uh, the difficulty is. The military, the senior leadership, tends to cling on those what we call espace values, that is to say the values that the military claims to have by saying, we need to change our culture, but we want to keep that piece in. And what they don't realize is really how that discrepancy was created and how their biases also prevents them from achieving that. So one, also another piece that needs to be included in this plan towards culture change is cultural awareness training. We often talk about cultural awareness only when um, soldiers are deploying abroad and they need to be aware of the culture of the country in which they're going to be in. But what we realize is that there is a lack of understanding of military culture really at all level of the institution and especially at the national defense headquarters.
0: So the the reason I think fundamentally that we're having uh, this conversation right now and that you wrote the paper right now uh, is that, as we have seen, there's there's been a a whole number of things that have happened in the last three months uh, with the Canadian military. Uh, Reflecting on that uh, and the the recent announcements that we've seen uh, just in the last several days, how do you think the organization is responding and, and how would you kind of situate that against the framework that you have laid out about what would be required to affect the kind of change that you're talking about?
2: So I'm going to touch on this more briefly cuz Charlotte's more of the expert on this and I'm just going to offer like a little bit of hope because I know Charlotte's going to be a bit cynical. So which I totally agree with, but I think we've got to we've got to offer some hope as well. Um so for one, it's so amazing that all of these survivors and victims have felt that they're able to speak out. That I think is probably the biggest positive that has come out of all of this, that these people have felt empowered to speak, have sometimes, probably not all the time, felt like they've been listened to by the media, by broader Canadian society. This has even gained international attention. There was a New York Times article. So that's excellent. I love that. I also have some hope with the general direction it's going, but I, I think Charlotte might, might come in and dash that hope. But I think I think General Eyre is sincere. Um, I, think, I think he's trying to take this seriously um, and I commend him for trying to include organizations and experts to build back from the ground up. I know he's doing that and I know he's doing that earnestly. Um, Elgin Carignan, um, the future chief of conduct and professionalism is excellent. She is great, but I worry that they're just kind of shoehorning a woman into a position she may not want. Um, and one that might take her career in a direction that she wasn't hoping for. Um, just because she's a woman and they feel that a woman is best equipped to do this um and as i said before we we can't expect to just add women and stir approach to fix the cast problems i worry that the cycle of the 90s and 2015 after the Deschamps report will continue i worry that all of these things will happen all of these reviews will be made and then five years from now it will be revealed that the issue never went away because it wasn't addressed properly so i worry about all those things but. I also do have some hope, um, but I, I just can't, I just can't see how the future will work out. I don't know, I think it's all in a big state of flux right now.
1: I think that saying that it's a, in a big state of flux is is a good way to put it uh, for the simple reason that we have a review underway and we don't know what's gonna happen in 12 to 15 months uh, when the results of, of that review is uh, is going to come in. Now, uh, for the, uh, I will start with like the more pessimistic view and then I'll finish with the hope and like what I think we have learned uh, from this is it feels a little bit like 2015, I have to say. Uh, We have a new review. This time compre- it's a extern- uh, comprehensive external review instead of just external review. Um, and then the creation of the chief military professionalism and conduct feels a lot like the, the creation of the Canadian Forces response team sexual misconduct, where you had a very high profile combat en- engineer, Chris Whitecross, that was put at the head of it. it. Jenny Carignan is also a combat engineer. So I don't, she is an amazing woman. She's very smart and she has succeeded and blown a lot of barriers in the Canadian Armed Forces, but she might not have the training and the occupational knowledge that is necessary to, to make the change. I'm also concerned about the fact that her civilian counterpart is an assistant deputy minister and that's the deputy minister herself or some, or responding directly to the chief of defense staff. I am concerned that her points of contact in within the individual commands, army, uh, Navy and Air Force are Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel and Commodore level. Only c Jack has appointed a general and flag officer to this role. And so what we have um, experienced, the way that the Canadian Armed Forces has experienced uh, gender integration was putting gender integration down the chain of command. And I'm afraid, I'm worried that putting it down the chain of command at the uh, environment levels will put down the issue of culture change within the headquarters only and not really spread out across all units and losing visibility, the visibility that it needs at all level. And I understand that there is complete complexity over that. Now for the positive things, I think I think that for all its flaws, Operation Honor has um, given more awareness to people to this, to this issue. Um, not always positive, but at least uh, we were able to talk about this. And as Bibi said, more women have, have come forward. There is, a, there is a move towards the senior leadership really wanting to understand what, what culture uh, has to do with it, like the impact of military culture writ large that uh and its influence on all of this um the only thing that i would say it remains very much looking at individual behaviors instead of when they say systemic they don't talk about how the structure of the military itself itself needs to change so that we can read of not only sexual misconduct but also all forms of interpersonal issues uh, that are rife in the military to this day so there are good things. Uh, there are other things that, that remain up in the air, just like the strategy is not due before December 2022. And we know what happened with Operation Honor. Uh, the, um, the strategy was during the summer of 2017, and we got it in November 2020. And now it's done. It's been dropped. And I, um, I think it's too bad to just use the rinse and redo it again and repeat approach, when there's a lot of lessons learned that need to be integrated and we don't need to wait until the end of Arbor's review to really start doing that, that comprehensive work and just establishing that new body within the, the bureaucracy is the only piece uh, to, to get the process going.
0: Well, Charlotte, Bibi, thank you very much for, for joining us today to talk about uh, this issue and, and your paper. Um, the last question I put to both of you, and I'll start with you, Charlotte. Uh, what are you reading?
1: So I'm a very fun person and right now I'm actually going through the archives of the Somalia Commission of Inquiry and the Five Board of Inquiry. So I'm actually spending my evenings right now uh, cataloging uh, documents and reading testimonies.
2: Super fun of you. Um, I the other the other thing that I do is um, I research uh, military technology from a critical security studies perspective. So for my thesis right now, I am reading *Predator Empire* by Ian Shaw on drones and atmospheric politics. Um, it's very interesting. <laughs> I just finished it today, actually.
0: Okay. Well, great. Uh, Charlotte, Beebe, thank you so much for joining us today on Defense Deconstructed.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI podcast network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like your stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgai.ca support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. Thanks go to our producers, Charlotte Duval-Antoine and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defence Deconstructed.